Hello, and welcome to Something Shakespeare This Way Comes, a podcast by an English nerd who has spent too much time thinking about what actually constituted a comedy in the 15 and 1600s. This is one of those episodes that I initially conceived of being a simple little primer on genre, a way for me to talk about how we compare comedies and tragedies and how histories fit into that bigger picture of what we're talking about when we discuss Shakespearean genre. For fun, I figured I'd throw in romances. The easiest way to do this would have been to tell you which plays fall into which category and tie it up with comedies are funny and tragedies end badly. But as seems to be a running theme with me, I read about three pages of one article and then I started running into all sorts of interesting complications that made the initial idea for an episode much more difficult than I originally thought it would be. I had a really good time reading the resources and taking notes for this, but when it came out to actually writing the script, I got really bogged down and had a lot of trouble. Normally, when I'm writing a script for this show, I collect all my thoughts and I maybe spend an evening or two kind of getting it laid out into a rough form. For this particular episode, I kept saying, I just need to sit down tonight and finish the episode. And then I kept sitting down tonight to finish the episode. And (laughs) a week and a half later, I had thousands of words, but seemingly no episode yet. And it was super frustrating. I think ultimately I was trying to fit in too much, giving the little points from what I'd read that seemed interesting, but it just like was not cohering. I really had flashbacks to my college days. Uh, I don't know if this happened to any of you, but I would read all the sources. I would take all my notes. I would be all excited because I had all of that done. And I was like, now all I have to do is compile it. And then when I sat down to compile it, nothing seemed to actually make the pieces fit together in any sort of cohesive way. And it took (laughs) so much struggle to make anything happen in any sort of way. I was happy when I was working on this episode that at least this wasn't, you know, the night before the essay was due that I was having this struggle, but it was um, still causing me a lot of pain. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And I think I finally reached something that is going to work. So my path forward is this. Rather than try to fit in a discussion of all things genre in one episode, I'm going to split it up into two episodes. This episode is going to feature um, comedies and tragic comedies slash romances. And the next episode, I'm going to cover tragedies and histories. So I'm hoping that this gives me some room to dig into a couple of the things I wanted to talk about without feeling like I had to skip to the next thing. Let's see if that kind of gives us the room to have a discussion that makes sense and to not turn in an extremely tortured last minute episode that earns me a lower grade than it seems like it should have. Before I start diving into comedies and tragic comedies and what that means, I want to talk a little bit about why we divide the plays into genres at all and why the topic is more fraught than you would think. Really, when it comes down to it, the first folio is the source of all of the drama. 
Before the first folio was published, and remember it was first published seven years after Shakespeare's death, a number of Shakespeare's plays had been printed in other forms during his lifetime. In some of those instances, there was a genre attached to the play. So Richard III is a really common example. Uh, When it was printed, it was billed as a tragedy. However, when the first folio was printed, Richard III was put into the history category. So from this example, we can see that the first folio does divide the plays into three distinct genres, but it does not always do so in a way that matches the way plays were previously printed, and it does not always do so in a way that makes sense to modern academic analysis. So what we have is the single page in the first folio that has just caused so much angst for hundreds of years afterwards. This is what is called the catalog page. It's essentially a table of contents. And what it does, it divides 35 of the 36 plays that are included in this volume into three distinct categories. And those three categories are comedies, histories, and tragedies. Now, you might have noticed that I said it only divides 35 of the 36 plays included into a specific section. That is because Troilus and Cressida is included in the first folio, but it is not included on the catalog page itself. Scholars think this is probably because, for whatever reason, they weren't sure they were going to be able to print it until the last minute, and then basically just didn't have time to include it on that catalog page. Uh, Where it is located in the first folio is after the last history play and before the first tragedy. So we can then kind of from, you know, guesses (laughs) see that it was intended to be included as a tragedy. I kind of find this omission funny because uh, Troilus and Cressida is one of those quote unquote problem plays that nobody really seems to know what genre it belongs in. It's been performed as a tragedy. It's been viewed as cynical satire comedy. It's been viewed as tragic comedy. It's been viewed as all of the things. And so I think it's kind of fitting that it just wasn't included in a category in the printing of the first folio. That is going to definitely be a topic of conversation for future episodes. So you might be asking yourself, okay, we have this catalog page. The plays are divided into the three categories. Does that really matter that much? And the answer to that is yes. (laughs) I recently read an article about the publication of the first folio, which is celebrating its 400th anniversary. It was published in 1623 because it's 2023. First folio is 400 years old. So happy birthday to the first folio. But in this article... What they did is they talked to a number of Shakespeare scholars about a couple of different things concerning the first folio, and I thought that some of these people made really interesting points about the categorization of genre in particular. So Michael Whitmore, who is the director of the Folger Shakespeare Library, he said that including this page in the folio has actually changed the way we study Shakespeare. So Whitmore said, quote, That single act of classifying the plays into three types is full of information, and researchers have been using these judgments from true domain experts to identify linguistic features specific to individual genres. 
Without this initial labeling of the 36 plays, most analyses would be circular in ways that make the results uninteresting. End quote. So the fact that Hemings and Condell and everyone else who worked on the first folio so profoundly affected scholarship of the genre just by putting those plays into categories really struck me. I think it's a great point that as actors who performed in the plays themselves and who knew Shakespeare, it does seem likely that Hemings and Condell would have kind of known where they fit. And by being people who were living at the time and people who were involved in theater living at the time, they would have also had a good read on how audiences would have viewed and thought about these plays. I also think it's interesting to think about how carefully they made these considerations. It's possible that they just kind of popped them all together and called it a day. That doesn't seem 100% likely just because publishing a book was so difficult in the 1600s. But I do want to say that it is interesting that Condal maybe just said, eh, let's just toss it into comedies. And then 400 years later, people are trying to parse exactly what that means. One of the categories we can see that they really did meddle with that suggests there was more careful thought put into it is specifically with the histories. So in that same article talking about the first folio, Emma Smith, who is a professor of Shakespeare studies at the University of Oxford, pointed out that someone put the history plays in order of chronology of the kings rather than the order they were written. So we have plays from King John to Henry VIII, and in the first folio they are listed from that earliest to that latest, even though we know that's not the order the plays were written in based on other primary resources that we can see. So Smith made the observation that, quote, that decision has shaped these plays in quite different ways from the experience of reading or seeing them as individual dramas. Since they went to that trouble on the histories, is there a logic to the order of the plays in the other two sections that we haven't yet been able to discern? End quote. I loved this observation because I think it's such a great point that once you have the plays bundled together in a certain order with a certain framing, that does change the way people think about them. And it really starts to make you kind of get galaxy brainy when you're thinking about, oh my gosh, what? why did they do the comedies and the tragedies that way? The histories have such a clear purpose of the ordering. One of the other things that the histories did that I'll talk more about in the next episode is they changed all of the titles to kind of make them fit as a cohesive unit. And while we can see the titles weren't really changed for comedies and histories, it does make you wonder what kind of logic they had there and what effect that's had on us when we view the plays as a group. So when we're thinking about the genre of the plays themselves, before Shakespeare had really started writing, there were already some Elizabethan literary critics, if you want to call them that, who had kind of started trying to define things. So we can see, for example, in the 1580s that Philip Sidney had laid down definitions of what constituted a comedy and a tragedy. But one of the things that's a little difficult about this is that the literary landscape was changing really quickly at this time, and the theatrical scene in particular was really exploding in a way 
that changed the way that plays and genre had been approached for a long time leading up to that. And so sometimes scholars are even a little hesitant. (laughs) They'll say, well, you know, here's the definition in the 1580s. But by the 1590s and 1600s, the Elizabethan theater scene had been doing so much that the definition from just, you know, 15, 20 years ago almost seems to not really apply anymore. Stanley Wells, who is a Shakespearean scholar, pointed out in an article he wrote uh, talking about Shakespearean comedies that we can see some of these more basic types of medieval drama that served as a basis for what Shakespeare and his contemporaries were doing, but that they were definitely changed and expanded upon. So Wells says, quote, after London opened professional playhouses, English drama greatly expanded its boundaries. Audiences came to expect longer and more ambitious entertainments, plays more complex in structure, often running separate plots alongside each other, end quote. So the fact that audiences had become more savvy and playwrights had become more savvy, savvy makes the simplistic categorization difficult to do. Um, Wells himself, when he's talking about this categorization the first folio does he personally thinks it was a bad idea he says this initial categorization has forced scholars to create a wide number of subgenres and then try to fit the plays into these overarching categories and by doing that we've kind of hemmed ourselves into these divisions and tried to twist ourselves up in a knot trying to make them work And I think this is true to some degree. We can see in Shakespeare's works that he really did like to toe the line and test the boundaries of genre and was kind of continually playing with it. But I think that there are still some overarching rules when it comes to comedies and tragedies that give us a little bit of context for how audiences in the 16th and 17th centuries would have thought about these things. So when it kind of comes down to keeping in mind when we say, this is what's expected in a comedy versus this is what this comedy is doing, is I have a 21st century example for you to kind of help set the stage. So here it is. Let's say that you spent the weekend watching When Harry Met Sally, followed by Animal House, followed by Tropic Thunder. So when you were talking to people about that, you would probably be fine saying you watched a bunch of comedies over the weekend. However, when watching these movies, you would not be judging them with the same set of rules. So when you are watching When Harry Met Sally, you are not applying the rules of satire or frat comedies to a romantic comedy. And same thing when you're watching Tropic Thunder, You are not going to be expecting those romantic comedy tropes to filter through into it. So while all three are distinct comedies, they're very distinct subtypes of comedies. And I think we can take this and apply this to Shakespeare's time. Audiences could go to the theater and watch a city comedy or a romantic comedy or a pastoral comedy And those distinctions would have been familiar to them and they kind of would have known what to expect with each one and they wouldn't have been judging them by each other's tropes or definitions. So when we are looking at 
what constitutes as a comedy in the 16th century, you always have to keep in mind that that doesn't mean all of the plays are exactly the same. There's a lot going on in different types of plays that make them fit into these different tropes and expectations. But at the same time, there is kind of a broad umbrella that we can apply. So with all of that said, (laughs) let's unpack what it means to perform a comedy in Shakespeare's time. So traditionally, the basic explanation for a comedy is that it starts in chaos and ends in order. Usually what this means is that multiple characters start out in some kind of flux. Maybe they're running away from home. Maybe they're expected to be in an arranged marriage. And then a bunch of shenanigans happen. And then at the end of the play, the couples kind of pair off with each other. And that is going to settle into something more stable. If you want to get really technical, this traditional definition of the comedy doesn't even mean that the play has to be funny. It just has to end well. And I think the kind of quintessential example of this is in Dante. So most people are familiar with Dante's Inferno with all the levels of hell. The narrator of Inferno eventually climbs his way up out of hell and makes his way into heaven. So Inferno is actually only the first act in a larger work that's called the Divine Comedy. And because Dante makes his way out of hell and up into heaven, this is a comedy. Uh, It's not something that most people classify as funny, but it does kind of fit this classical definition or umbrella approach. Now, that said, in the Elizabethan and uh, Jacobean theater scene, comedy did typically mean funny plays. Funny plays were very popular. We can see Shakespeare and his contemporaries were writing farcical plays, slapstick plays, and that a lot of that stuff is supposed to be funny. So it's not anachronistic to say that a comedy is funny at this point in time, but just saying that the kind of traditional definition of comedy doesn't necessarily include funny. It just kind of includes things coming together in an order. One other traditional understanding of the comedy from that movement from chaos to order is that order entails things like conventional marriages, women who are no longer dressing up as boys but wearing the proper clothing, It involves bachelors finally settling down and other things like that that make up those building blocks of society, a very, you know, patriarchal, heteronormative, expected society. And when we're watching these comedies, we laugh at the action and all the chaos and the upending of social norms. But at the end of the plays, the norms are firmly back in place. And that's kind of what constitutes the happy ending. Because of this, you can sometimes view Elizabethan comedy as conventional. And some people, in fact, have looked at Shakespeare's comedies and accused them of promoting convention, that the characters who were having a lot of fun and running around and gender bending their dress are now kind of returning to the same old, same old that society wants you to carry out. I think that is true to some degree, 
But again, right away, things get messy and you can see Shakespeare messing with this all over the place. Um, In a lot of his comedies, characters get paired off, but a lot of times there's an outlying character or misfit who doesn't quite fit in and doesn't allow for that tidy ending. There are things that leave really open-ended questions In the uh, Bedford Companion to Shakespeare, the author was talking about how in a lot of comedies, how many of these relationships that are supposed to settle down into happy marriages, how many of them do you actually expect to last and to not instantly dissolve into chaos again, which I think is a funny point. In the case of a play like Twelfth Night as a comedy example, we have a couple of left out characters. So we have Malvolio. He kind of swears revenge on everyone and storms off the stage. And then we have another character, Antonio, who has a really homoerotic relationship with Sebastian. Sebastian actually gets married off to a woman and then Antonio's, we're not really sure what's going to happen to him after the fact. Then there's also this really interesting point where Viola, who's the protagonist, she's been dressed as a boy for almost the entire play. And she gets revealed as a woman, and Orsino and Viola decide that they're going to get married, and Orsino makes a comment about how, we'll change you back into your, quote, woman's weeds, and then we can get married. But the play actually ends with Viola still dressed as a boy, which means in Shakespeare's time, you would have seen two guys who were promised to marry each other, which is something that didn't really happen in the 1600s. Of course, we have that, you know, underlying comic effect of a boy actor playing a girl dressed as a boy, but that just kind of goes to show that even if the play is ending in so-called convention, there are so many kind of open-ended things going on that it kind of leaves you to question How orderly is the ending? And is it really promoting this very strict worldview and way of living? In my mind also, for what it's worth, um, in plays like Twelfth Night, I 100% think that everything is going to devolve into chaos again and that a whole bunch more shenanigans have to happen before things kind of shake out into a settled state. So whether Shakespeare intended that or not, I think that's a pretty common modern view of the plays and one that kind of shakes up that expectation or that criticism of convention. I'm not saying that's not a valid criticism to have, but just that we need to kind of think a little beyond that to see where the comedies are really leading us. Stanley Wells, in his chapter on the comedies, he looked at some conventions of theater at the time and how they showed up in Shakespeare's plays. And one point he brought up that I think was really interesting is that at this time, a lot of playwrights were writing their plays largely in blank verse. And especially when it came to serious topics, you saw characters speaking in blank verse. In opposition to that is writing in prose or regular dialogue. And Shakespeare was really good at kind of toggling back and forth between the two. And what we can see is that in comedies, he tends to use less blank verse and more prose. So in silly situations or when you have characters who are less um, like in noble positions, they are more likely to speak in prose than they are to speak 
in verse. I think there are scholars who have probably done this. I did look at a little chart that he provided where it kind of breaks up the ratio of prose to verse, and we can really see that comedy as a whole really leans into prose. I believe it was Mary Wives of Windsor was the one that had the most, the highest ratio of prose of all of the plays, but there's probably some point that people consider that that tipping point where you have more verse than prose, at what point that becomes tragedy, or if the tragic comedies and the problem plays kind of fall into that in between. Uh, but I think that's like a really cool convention that when I'm watching a play, I cannot always tell the difference between prose and verse personally, unless someone's delivering some really beautiful lyrical monologue where it becomes more obvious. But I think that is a nice indicator, at least, of one of those genre divisions. Um, Some of Shakespeare's comedies also use other features of popular entertainment at the time. So we have songs, dances, pageant-like episodes, body wordplay. In one instance, he does include a dog. And kind of all of those things that people just really liked to see and were popular, Shakespeare was including in his plays. One point of difference in Shakespeare's comedies versus the comedies of some of his contemporaries is that they are largely set outside of England. So this is kind of a note people have about Shakespeare is that he doesn't really have, he has his history plays set in England, but those are not set in contemporary England compared to him at least. And then a lot of his other plays are set in places like France and Italy, all over the place. And his comedies follow that convention. Whereas other writers of the times, like Ben Jonson, sent a lot of his plays in London, and Shakespeare just didn't really do this. Uh, Wells makes the argument that this kind of shows the literary influence on Shakespeare, that he's setting his plays in other places based on stuff that he had read as opposed to the other types of theater going on around him. In some cases, setting might help define a comedy. So I think I mentioned earlier there's such a thing as a city comedy, and that's a comedy that takes place in contemporary London and is kind of poking fun at modern city conventions. Shakespeare didn't really do that so much. When we are looking at Shakespearean comedy as a whole, we can kind of delineate a progression. So his earlier comedies do tend to be lighter in tone and lean more toward farce. And that includes some plays like Two Gentlemen of Verona, Comedy of Errors. A Midsummer Night's Dream kind of bridges the gap between earlier comedies and into his more mature comedies. It has some of those kind of romantic comedy elements, but it's still some of some of that light, fun, slapsticky kind of stuff. And then we have his plays that are more firmly called romantic comedies and are kind of considered, I want to say, his maybe most esteemed set of comedies. And that includes Much Ado About Nothing, As You Like It, Twelfth Night. After Twelfth Night, we start moving into comedies that give people a little more trouble. So a couple of the comedies after this fact, they've been deemed problem plays, Wells himself categorized them as conditional comedies, and these are plays that technically fit into the comedy category, 
but the happy ending feels kind of weird. So these plays include Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well. Measure for Measure ends with a promised marriage, uh, like you would typically expect out of a comedy, but it's weird because it's between the Duke, who's kind of been orchestrating all this stuff in the play, and the character Isabella. Isabella is wants to be a nun, so her plan is to join a convent. She's trying to save her brother's life, and then at the end of the play, the Duke kind of says, oh, by the way, Isabella and I are going to get married, and she doesn't really have a response to this, and a lot of people walk away from that play going like, what is going on there? That feels wrong. <laughs> In All's Well That Ends Well, Bertram and Helen do end up married, but Bertram spends the entire play being completely uninterested in her, and then Helen has to pull some, like, pretty weird, questionable things to basically trick or force Bertram into marrying her, and he seems to have a last-minute change of heart and is like, great, we'll get married now, and I'm happy with that. And people tend to look at this play and just say that just it doesn't quite seem right there's a whole other discussion to be had on the problem plays but these two at least do fit into the comedy category even if they make people a little uncomfortable after those plays we get into some of the other plays that are typically classified as tragic comedies or romances And these were largely included in the comedy section in the first folio. I will talk more about this in a second, but they tend to also feel just like a little too dark, basically, for your conventional comedy. So I think it's probably a little too broad to say Shakespeare comedies kind of go from the lightest and most farcical and then steadily move toward darker, more troubling But I will say like that works as an overall arc or read of the comedies is that the earlier ones are definitely lighter and fair and that the later ones do start getting more troubling. Now, that's not to say that early comedies don't include some dark elements and that later ones don't include farce and slapstick. So if we think of the comedy of errors, which is one of the earlier ones, I mean, this play is such a goofy mistaken identity everyone two sets of identical twins i mean it's it's pretty ridiculous and it's very funny (laughs) but when you think about the framework of this play there's the threat of death kind of looming over the play and then it ends with this touching family reunion and these elements of the play are shakespeare's so comedy of errors is based on the general plot of a Latin language play by Plautus about identical twins. And we can see he even lifted some of like the plot elements directly from this play. But all of this kind of dark framework, the threat of death, all of that, that is Shakespeare's addition to the play. So he kind of took something that was more straight farce and then said, let me ratchet up the stakes a little bit there. Another example of an early comedy that kind of breaks... Uh, this mold, or at least has elements that kind of go outside of it, is Love's Labor's Lost. So this is a play basically dedicated to the characters constantly one-upping each other. The wordplay is the point of it, and at the end you're like, there's going to be four marriages. But kind of right at that point where you would expect that to happen, 
news arrives that the princess's father has died and she and all of her maidens are going to go into mourning instead. And everyone kind of promises at the end of this period of mourning, then we'll meet up again. Does look like there might have been a play called Love's Labors 1 that was a follow-up to this play and probably completed this cycle. But for whatever reason, it wasn't included in the first folio and we do not have a script for it. So we don't really have a conclusion to Love's Labor's Lost, except that that marriage, that expectation has been broken and that it's going to happen at some later point. As I mentioned earlier, Twelfth Night, which is considered Shakespeare's last great romantic comedy, really contains some darker elements that kind of test those lines. So Malvolio, as I mentioned, he gets left out at the end of the play. He starts as kind of this comic buffoon character. He's the butt of a joke, but kind of seems to deserve it. However, as things go on, it basically, the joke gets completely out of hand and there's kind of a torture, psychological torture scene with him that gets pretty dark and uncomfortable. And when he exits, he, you know, his parting line to everyone is, I'll be revenged on the pack of you all. And Olivia, after he walks off, she's like, you know what? Yeah, like, we did not do right by him. I saw an adaptation of Twelfth Night in college that set up Malvalu this way, where you started laughing at him. And then by the end, you were like, I'm extremely uncomfortable with the way Malvolio is being treated right now. And I thought it served as a really great contrast to kind of like starting out with, haha, this is a good joke. And then, oh my God, no, it's not good anymore. Kind of like makes you think about people actually deserving that kind of treatment. But Twelfth Night as a whole still stays funny and everyone still considers it a comedy And I think maybe more than any of the other plays, it successfully kind of pushes the boundary right up to the point where it can still be considered a comedy and doesn't delve into either tragic comedy or this problem play territory, which is really interesting. There's a ton more to say about Twelfth Night, and I will definitely be covering more about that in future episodes. One other aspect of comedy I think we should keep in mind is regardless of what an audience in the 16th or 17th century would have expected, that is going to be different than things that audiences in the modern day expect. And while the roots of some comedy really does seem to stay the same, other parts of it really change over time. I think we can see this change in comedy sometimes just in jokes or subplots in plays where you know that someone in the 16th century would have found a particular joke funny and now we're like I don't have the context for that and do not understand it which can be very helpful sometimes with footnotes (laughs) but also means that sometimes there are comedic setups or plays that were maybe funny to an audience back then but don't really feel the same in the modern day. I think the Shakespeare comedy that embodies this idea more than any of the other ones is The Merchant of Venice. And this pretty much has to do with Shylock himself and the treatment of Jewish people in literature and on stage. In the Elizabethan theater, Jewish characters were often reduced to stereotypes and were deemed hilarious clowns 
because of those stereotypes. So if you think of like the quote unquote traditional Shylock, he would have likely been performed with a big fake nose, maybe with a red wig, and people would have just kind of jeered at him as ridiculous. Hundreds of years later, we do not portray Shylock this way for a whole host of reasons, mostly that many of us would be absolutely horrified by this. If you look at The Merchant of Venice and how it's been performed over time, coming into the last, you know, 100, 150 years, the portrayal of Shylock has changed and grown. And in particular, Jewish actors and directors and creatives have really taken the treatment of Shylock and brought out his humanity. They've really tried to pull out all of those nuances and made him much more sympathetic and often more of a tragic figure instead of one that we want to laugh at. Shakespeare himself, now I'm not going to claim Shakespeare is like writing great representation of Jewish characters, but he at least always included enough nuance in the plays that you can draw out these elements to make Shylock more relatable than you could in some of the other plays of his contemporaries. That is not to say this is good on him, just (laughs) saying this is why modern actors and directors have been able to pull those things out. However, when we approach The Merchant of Venice from this modern view and bringing out Shylock as, you know, a human character with understandable motivations, it does leave the production with some troubling plot points. So, for example, um, at the end, Shylock is determined to get his pound of flesh from Antonio, which is basically going to consist of him killing Antonio to cut it off. Portia shows up in disguise. She kind of pulls this loophole and Shylock ultimately is not rewarded his pound of flesh. He doesn't get the return on his loan. He loses his money. And then in just a horrible plot point, he's stripped of his religion altogether. He's forced to convert. This is not a comic conclusion. And right after you witness that, where you're like, Portia's a bad person, I feel terrible for Shylock, you have a follow-up scene where Portia comes back home and she's flirting with her husband and they're telling everyone about this happy conclusion. And this is pretty disconcerting and feels very weird. (laughs) Not to mention, on top of all of that, Shylock's daughter, Jessica, who has been present throughout the whole play, she's in the final act. So earlier in the play, she ended up running off with a guy, decided to convert to Christianity and get married to him. And in the last act, a lot of people have noticed that she kind of abruptly stops talking when Portia and Nerissa come back. And then she doesn't talk again for the rest of the play. So she hears this quote-unquote comic conclusion of what happened to her father and never says anything about it. And this has left a lot of people wondering what's going on in her head. Is she starting to second-guess her choices? Um, Her last line in the play is in response to some music playing nearby. She says, I am never merry when I hear sweet music. And you want to know, like, is she unsettled? Does she kind of have a sense of what's going to happen? And this allows a modern production 
to kind of tease out some of those really unsettling elements in that final act. To an audience in the 16th century, Shylock's fate would have not necessarily bothered them. Someone being forced to convert to Christianity, if you were a Christian at the time, maybe would be seen as actually a net positive. Obviously, that's incredibly troubling and does not hold the same weight today. But I think the fact that Jessica's inclusion in that final scene and her seeming ambivalence introduces something in the text that we now have to play with and tease out these troubling aspects. Whether or not audiences at the time would have really clocked that or if that would have been drawn out at the time, probably not. But it does allow us to introduce those complications, but it does mean that it's not as much of a comedy anymore. So I was thinking of the 2004 film version of The Merchant of Venice starring Al Pacino. And overall, that movie has a much darker and more serious tone. And the end of it is really heartbreaking. And I think it fits really well and it makes sense to the modern viewer. But then it does kind of mean whether or not it fits the traditional conception of the comedy. I think approaching The Merchant of Venice in 2023 and just saying, yep, it's a comedy is not really very fitting. So regardless of where it used to fall, where it falls now necessarily sometimes has to land differently. I'm going to stop talking there. There's so much more to say about that play and we'll definitely have to wrestle more with it later. But hopefully these examples have kind of showed that when it comes to comedy, there's just a lot going on. So we've been talking about comedies that are towing the line, comedies that have tipped fully over into problem plays. At what point does comedy push on the boundaries of genre so hard that it becomes a different genre altogether. <laughs> this is where we get the tragicomedies slash romances. As I mentioned, the first folio splits plays into comedies, tragedies, and histories. So I think it's worth asking, okay, why did we why did we even create a fourth genre? Like that wasn't in the original. And I think it's because these plays feel so much different that it's hard to comfortably just define them as a straight comedy. It's also fair to say that grouping some of these as tragicomedies isn't entirely a modern construction. So the concept of tragicomedy did exist in the 16th century We've seen references to it. People were talking about tragical comedies in the 1500s. And we even have an official definition of tragic comedy that was written by John Fletcher. If that name sounds familiar, John Fletcher is the guy who co-wrote several plays with Shakespeare and ended up taking over as lead playwright for The King's Men after Shakespeare's retirement and death. In 1608, Fletcher wrote, quote, a tragicomedy is not so called in respect of mirth and killing, but in respect it wants deaths, which is enough to make it no tragedy, yet brings some near it, which is enough to make it no comedy. 
So basically what he's saying is not enough deaths to make it a tragedy, but everyone gets close enough to death that we can't really make it a comedy. (laughs) This is kind of a vague definition, but I think it really fits with the feeling of the four plays that typically get grouped this way and with the ways people try to define these four plays. At some point, what it really boils down to is that the vibe of these plays are different, and so we want to classify them in a different way. In addition to being called tragicomedies, these plays sometimes get referred to as romances. This is more of a modern conception. The term romance was first used for this set of four plays in 1875 by Edward Dowden, and he grouped it this way because it fits with the romance plot. And here we're using romance in the capital R romantic sense and not in the two characters falling in love sense. So in this classical romantic plot, you see stories that include things like lost children, gods and prophecies, and miraculous reunions. Jeanette Dillon, who wrote about the issue of tragicomedies and romances in a chapter of The New Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare, tried to kind of puzzle out the correct term and why both of them were used because elements of tragicomedy definitely apply to these four plays, but also kind of apply to some of Shakespeare's earlier comedies. And elements of romance also appear in these four plays, but also appear in some of Shakespeare's earlier comedies. Dylan ultimately concludes that it's kind of this combination of both tragicomic and romantic in these four plays in particular that have caused people to separate them as a group. So what are these four plays? They are Pericles, The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, and Cymbeline. The Tempest and The Winter's Tale are both included in the first folio under comedies, whereas Cymbeline is listed in the tragedies section, despite the fact that it does end with a promised wedding and some some deaths, but not a bunch of deaths <laughs> near the end of the play. So it kind of is, again, straddling that line where there's a couple of deaths, but it's not to the same degree that a lot of the um, tragedies have in the death count. I think it's also worth noting that Cymbeline features a heroine who dresses up as a boy, which we kind of consider a staple of Shakespeare comedies. The fourth play, Pericles, does not appear in the first folio at all. It was first published in 1609 during Shakespeare's lifetime, but it wasn't included in the larger collection of Shakespeare plays until the printing of the third folio. Some people think that this might be because Shakespeare co-authored it with someone else, and it has led to people to call into question authorship of that play altogether, but based on linguistic analysis and all the rest of it, um, enough of it is thought to have been written by Shakespeare that it does get grouped with these, and it was eventually included in the grouping um, of Shakespeare's plays. Also worth noting, when it was printed during Shakespeare's lifetime, it was billed as a Shakespeare play. So let's break down these plays. I've already talked about The Tempest, and you can go listen to me talk about that, (laughs) but as an overview, The Tempest does have some comedic elements, There are some scenes that are pretty funny. You know, we have the jester characters and Stefano and Trinculo. The Tempest does end with the promised marriage of Miranda and Ferdinand. But it is also a play about revenge and redemption. And it's really about Prospero and 
his ultimate decision to renounce magic, to get over his revenge, and to move on with life. The play kind of fits that classical idea of the comedy as, you know, an ending that works out and uplifts, even if it's not especially funny. But you can see how this kind of melancholy of this older man coming to grips with his life, how he's going to spend his final years coming to this place of forgiveness. It just doesn't quite seem to fit in a category with a play like Much Ado About Nothing. In The Winter's Tale, uh, this play does end with a promised marriage and a woman's life restored. So that part kind of fits that comedy. In the first half of the play, the king causes his son and wife's death basically for no reason. Then he sends off his baby daughter to get killed. And then 16 years pass and he spends it in mourning reflecting on his bad decisions and is just kind of lucky enough that his wife miraculously seems to come back to life. There is an act of The Winter's Tale that's basically straight pastoral comedy, but I will say that tonally this play is pretty weird. I have seen a production of it and while there are some funny bits, it, it there are many parts of it that do not seem to be comedic at all. So I could definitely see why this one belongs in another category. When thinking about definitions of tragic comedies and romances, aside from the definition that John Fletcher provided, what other elements do these plays have in common besides the fact that they all just don't seem to quite fit that comedy vibe? I read a couple things wrestling with that question and have turned up some answers people have sort of wrangled together. So in the Bedford Companion to Shakespeare, the argument was that wandering is the point of a romance and that at the end of the wandering, you have the conclusion. Taking that classical view of capital R romance way back, we can see the Odyssey as sort of the first romance story. And some of these other plays, um, characters in Cymbeline and Pericles especially spend a lot of time traveling the globe and going a bunch of different places to kind of reach their conclusions. The Winter's Tale and The Tempest both feature some of these like, quote unquote, exotic locations and fantastical settings. And that kind of lends into this other element that seems to be a hallmark of Shakespearean romance which is this kind of magical and lyrical nature of the settings and of the language. And that lyricism is sometimes in the poetic nature of the dialogue, but is sometimes presented as actual music that's woven throughout. So if you remember from the discussion of The Tempest, Ariel sings several songs throughout the play and other characters can hear that music and they talk about the music of the island Caliban himself has a lovely little bit of dialogue about the beautiful music that the island makes. And some of the other plays classified as romances have similar inclusion of music going on here. Also, if we think about the fact that a more straight comedy is going to use more prose and less blank verse... The romance plays do really include these lyrically beautiful speeches and conversations that 
kind of break it out of that expectation of witty banter and prose dialogue. One other interesting point that Jeanette Dillon made was that the term romance might be more applicable to these plays than tragicomedy. And she concluded this by looking at the way that other tragicomedies were performed and the way that that genre of play developed in the 17th century. And she notes that tragicomedy really started kind of becoming satirical in nature. And Shakespeare's tragicomedy slash romances, they'll like kind of tiptoe up to being cynical, but then turn away from it and instead favor these more romantic elements that center reunion, recognition, and reconciliation, and the feeling and the connection, as opposed to this kind of like grotesque satire of people and situations. And so in that way, Shakespeare, some of Shakespeare's other comedies are different from his contemporaries. So you could still say that the tragicomedies could still be termed a tragicomedy and also be different from contemporaries. But that's just another reason why some people prefer thinking of them as romances instead. I think it's also worth pointing out that romances tend to get a bad rap because they all play with these genre bounds and just kind of tend to be weird and unsettling and really different in tonal modes depending on the act and the scene and sometimes resolve really quickly or with the interference of a god people can kind of tend to dismiss them as just being a little bit of a mess some people have argued you know Shakespeare these were later in his career so he's getting older maybe he's getting bored maybe he's losing his touch Maybe he ran out of ideas. You know, there are a whole bunch of arguments for why these plays just feel kind of weird to us. But I also think we should keep in mind that just because we think that now, that doesn't mean it's always been the case. So I was refreshing myself on Cymbeline while I was writing the script for this and reminded that Cymbeline was wildly popular in the 1800s. People loved it. Now, most of you have probably never read or heard of Cymbeline, <laughs> but it could make a comeback. Before we judge these plays too much, we really have to think about what's going on in the modern day and how they're getting interpreted and how they're connecting with audiences. You know, it only takes one production that comes at a play with just the right interpretation that hits audiences in just the right way and makes it seem fresh and relevant all over again. So I think it's fair to say some of these plays make me feel weird and I don't really like them, but I think that there's still a lot we can learn and uncover in the tragic comedies and romances and someone's going to end up making some amazing production of Cymbeline that's going to make all of us go, this play rules. So... I've said this at multiple points, and I will definitely say it again. Depending on the culture and the time and the current events and whatever else, plays can surge in and out of popularity, and you just kind of got to wait and see what the next surge is going to be. I hope that throughout this discussion, I have managed to drive home the point that when it comes to dividing up Shakespeare's plays into neat little packages... The task is actually a lot more complex than it initially seems. 
while this is uh, illustrative of how nuanced and complex Shakespeare's work can be, it also made it difficult for me to simplify things. So throughout, I'm sure you heard just how much fodder for discussion there is. And there are a lot of points where I had to cut myself off and just rest easy with the fact that I will be able to do a whole episode on that very topic at some point in the future. If there is any one of those points I brought up that you want to know more about and would like to hear a full-length episode on sooner rather than later, please drop me a note and let me know. There are a couple ways you can do this. So you can find me online at somethingshakespeare.com or you can find me on Instagram at somethingshakespearepod. Uh, I am trying to post on social media a little more often, but while I've been wrestling with how to figure out how to discuss genre, I've kind of been falling off the wagon. But hopefully some more fun stuff to come there so you can find me either one of those places. You can drop me a note if you use Spotify. There's like a Q&A feature. I will turn on a question and you can drop me a note there. And if you are someone who happens to know me personally, you can also send me a text. I will not be giving my phone number to everybody online, but if you know me, feel free to text me about it. (laughs) Our podcast art was designed and illustrated by the absolutely delightful Haley Branson. You can see more of her work on Instagram at hbranana. My intro and outro music is performed by Joe's DVG on the lute. And it is an excerpt from the piece Midnight by Elizabethan composer John Dowland. When will we meet again? Sometime in the wind or rain or maybe snow? Maybe when the battle's lost or won? But regardless of the weather and the state of the battle, the next episode will drop squarely in the middle of the hurly-burly. Because as we all know, the hurly-burly's never done. Bye!